the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So this podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning and Environmental Law Association, also known as VPLA, a non-political, multidisciplinary professional association concerned with the planning, legal and environmental fields. Welcome to PX56 today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Peter Jewell. Hello Jess, how are you? Just a reminder, oh sorry, yes, I'm good, thanks Pete. (laughs) Just a reminder to our listeners to subscribe to our podcast through the podcast app on your smartphone, SoundCloud, or you can directly download from our website at www.planningexchange.org. What a truly exciting experience this is. Doing this in front of a live audience feels a little bit weird. A very happy audience too, Very happy audience. Um, I just also wanted to quickly acknowledge we've got a few former podcast guests in the audience today. We've got Tim Biles. Cameron Alderson, Chris Goss, Damien Isles, Mark Shepard, Jane Monk, Stephen Rowley and Sean Hogan. And I do point out, Jess, we do have a gender equality, so most of the people we, we interview do. are so it's, Yes. Hmm. So today we're joined by Tim Eaton, Director of Knowledge, Standards and Assessment at the Environmental Protection Authority, also known as the EPA for our interstate listeners. Tim is the Executive Director of Regulatory Standards, Assessment and Permissioning at the EPA. His role is to make complex decisions regarding development proposals, environmental audits and land use planning across Victoria. Jess, almost 50 years ago when the first Earth Day, which was April 22nd, 1970, was held, the catastrophe that awaited us was mass starvation, lost farmland, overpopulation, our supplies of oil and gas running on empty, early death, nuclear winter, and believe it or not, a second ice age coming. Every single one of those predictions was not just wrong, but spectacularly wrong. The opposite occurred, but the doomsday machine rolls on. The declinism of the state of our planet and the well-being of our species is everywhere in our schools, at planning conferences, the media, the internet, and the whole culture. In some, our planet is in a miserable state, we're told over and over, but this, this is not the case. How do we get sensible conversations about the quality of the environment? It's great to have Tim Eaton here with us to share some thoughts about progress on environmental matters. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Peter. So, Tim, we are all shaped by our experience. What are the main things that have shaped you? Uh, I've always hated waste. Uh, I don't think that's because I've ever had a deep green revelation or anything like that, or it's because I tuned into Craig Rewcastle or anything like that. I think it's because I come from a family of post-war British migrants. Um, And to to us, that sort of frugality was really important. From a very young age, we were uh, always very careful with our money, with things that that we owned, and and we looked after things, and we didn't waste things. And that carries through to today. So I'm the one in the family who washes out the Ziploc bags when I'm finished with them, rather than throwing them in the bin. Um, And that's, that's sort of part of who I am. Um, I think in a, in a career sense, uh, I spent 10 years in the uh, transport industry, regulating the transport industry, and in that you meet, you know, Toll, Linfox, major multinational companies, right through to the owner-driver. And you sort of come to the realisation when you're talking to an owner-driver that decisions you make 
are impacting on their livelihood, on their daily business and, and on their families. And for me, that's led to, uh, it's, le it's led to a sort of a, an outlook where private enterprise is important uh, and you need to respect that in your role as a, as a regulator in particular. Tim, what are the biggest challenges for regulating environmental protection at the moment? I know it's a huge question, but in one minute or less? Uh, uh, we'll, we'll be talking a lot today about moving from harm to prevention. That's really important. We can no longer just deal with harm, so we'll get to that a bit later on, I think. Um, legacy issues. Probably more than half of what EPA does is deal with legacy issues. So issues from the past often due to poor planning decisions or poor decisions at the outset. Uh, that's a big issue for us. And also the fact that we're now moving to a much more diffuse uh, form of pollution. So um, individual behaviour is the sort of stuff that really starts to matter. And that's a very difficult challenge to move from regulating point sources through to changing behaviour. So Tim, how do you balance wearing multiple hats? Environmental regulator versus stakeholder versus influencer? So rule number one is regulators must regulate, okay? So if you read the Banking Royal Commission, if you read any review of any regulator ever, the conclusion is the same. Regulators must regulate. Now, if you do that well, uh, you can be the influencer, you can be the advisor, because people respect, uh, respect who you are, respect your authorised authorising environment, if you like. So that's that's a, a really important, um, in terms of balancing those hats, that's the hat you've got to wear first. You have to be a good regulator. I started at the EPA as a regional manager. You go to a meeting with a CEO of the local council. Now that CEO of the local council to us is a duty holder because they might be running a landfill, so you've got that regulator duty holder relationship. Uh, they might also be seeking our advice on how they, I don't know, uh, improve uh, a new bridge over, over a sensitive wetland or something like that. And also we're trying to influence them on um, the next precinct structure plan review and that sort of thing. So very complex relationships and you have to wear all of those hats in the one discussion. But I think as I, I'll keep coming back to the principal hat we have to wear is as the regulator. Tim, the EPA started on the 1st of July 1971. Is the environment today better than when the EPA started? And, uh, and I'll just, and in terms of air quality and water quality, and just as an aside, 100 years ago in America, one in four deaths were caused by contaminated water. Now it's basically zero. But just getting back to the short life of the EPA and what, what you've been able to achieve. Well, 50 years isn't really a, a short life for a regulator. I think, in fact, I think that's pretty impressive. But what, what's changed in that time is the environment's much better, right? So the, the Maribyrnong, when we started, used to run red because of the dye works or the abattoirs or whatever it might have been. Um, we had um, uh, significant air quality problems, even though we had far fewer cars on the road. 1986, the ban of lead from gasoline um, basically eliminated lead from our atmosphere. Uh, we don't even measure it anymore as an air quality pollutant because it's not worth measuring it because it's not there to find. They're massive impactful changes, largely led by uh, technological development. Um, and, and now I think we're moving to an era now where yes, technology is important, but human behaviour is becoming even more important. So have the easy things, so the low hanging fruit, you might call it, already been picked up and are the gains from here likely to be more marginal? Um, 
I'm not sure the gains will be more marginal, but our approach to getting them will be very different. As I've mentioned, I think technology is going to remain important, but so, you know, the ability to influence human behaviour. I'll, I'll use the example of litter, right? So every year, every year the EPA gets 20,000 litter reports. That's people who can be bothered to write down the number plate of the car that's just chucked something out of the window. 20,000 of those, that converts to about 14,000 litter offences. Each of those fines is worth somewhere between 300 and 600 bucks. So, you know, I, I, what, what does that tell you about human behaviour? It tells you that people are really uh, passionate about protecting their environment to the extent that 20,000 reports a year come through, and that's been consistent over about the last five years. It also tells you there's more than 20,000 people chucking stuff out of their car window. <laughs> so, you know, you sort of got this polarisation almost in, in behaviour that da data like that gives you an insight to. Mm. Tim, the EPA Act, uh, what does the new Act mean for planning? Um, oh, that's a big question again, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Always so, asking the heavy-hearted ones. Look, back in, in 2016, we underwent a comprehensive review. It basically, it pointed out that a lot of these legacy issues were based on bad decisions. So the question is, how do you get EPA at the de decision-making table? And, and you guys are a part of that decision-making table. So um, it, it really, um, the, the changes are really about um, EPA being more involved in decision making uh, at the strategic level, at the local government level, um, from you know planning permits right through to precinct structure planning. Trying to get in early is the really important change you can expect. So they're the key messages from the new Act, would you say? Uh, there's lots of messages from the new Act. There's, this is probably the most comprehensive change we've had in the 50-year history. In fact, without a doubt it is. So that, that goes live from July 2020. Uh, it is a, a very significant change and it is about bringing about the shift from harm to prevention. A uh, small example of that is um, uh, if, you, uh, if you have a development nearby a creek or something like that, first thing the developer does is remove all of the grass. That means that when it rains, that's going to wash into the water. Under the current regime, if we go along to that site and we can see that that harm is, a, is likely to occur, there's very little we can do about it. Uh, because um, they can say, oh, I don't think it's going to rain, um, and we can't prove beyond reasonable doubt that, that it is going to rain. Mm. Um, so they don't take any action. Now, those actions are as simple as putting down a few hay bales with star pickets through them. Isn't that sort of a crossover from council regulation already happening, though? Uh, is there an overlap with all that? I, I don't think there's a... Uh, I think that is a, a direct threat to the protection of the environment, and, and I think it's very foreseeable and the fact that we haven't got the powers to deal with something as simple as that um, is the function of a 1970s act so the new act is basically saying you have to take all reasonable and practical steps you know is it reasonable and practical to put down a few hay bales with a few star pickets through them well of course it is um, and under the new act if you're failing to do that uh, and it's quite clearly industry good practice then you're committing an offence we don't have to wait for the harm to occur. We can say the offence is not doing a simple job like taking those sorts of steps. So, Tim, the new Act also includes a definition of human health, which includes psychological health. How will this be assessed and managed? It seems to be opening a huge can of worms that the industry and regulators may not have the relevant skills to manage and determine. 
we don't think it opens a can of worms. Uh, it was put there, if you look through the, uh, the history of the, the design of this new act, it basically acknowledged that you can't just protect physical health because what, what people are passionate about and what comes through through our reports and so forth is that people really care about things like odour and noise affecting their lives. So odour and noise doesn't actually have physiological effect. So um, we put that definition in the in the new um, human health uh, uh, definition so that we could um, we can make sure that we are reflecting the community's importance and reflecting community's very, very hard to manage like. very hard to assess psychological health though isn't it Tim I mean it's not like you can measure sound quality you can measure odor control but I mean what's harmful to me might not be harmful to Jess but I think you can assess whether noise is annoying and whether odour is unacceptable. You can assess those mm. things. And but I there's think quantifiable yeah. measures to do that. Uh, largely, yes. But it are. sounds... Uh, OK. A contaminated land, um, Tim, a, a topic that many planners have to deal with uh, and, and people who live in those areas. Uh, there is a sense in the development space that there, will, there needs to be more flexibility uh, in how contaminated land is dealt with and how will this be addressed in the new framework? Uh, so look, we really agree. Flexibility is the key here. Uh, flexibility is really important. At the moment, you've basically got, you know, an audit or nothing. Um, there are only two different types of audit. So the new Act introduces a couple of new duties: the duty to notify of contaminated land and the duty to manage contaminated land. Um, the flexible approach. Uh, gives us a graduated audit system where the audit scope is infinitely variable, which is really important. Um, it also introduces a new um, early option to get through the audit, which is the preliminary risk uh, screen. Um, so introducing that level of flexibility along with these new duties is, is a really important function of the new Act. And, and for example, is there an option for, uh, for 173 agreements to be put on land to deal with contamination? Look, we've had a crack at 173s in the past and they're pretty hopeless from our point of view. Just for our listeners overseas, uh, Section 173 agreement is, uh, is a restriction placed on the title of the land that can't be, it's like a covenant that can't be discharged until the actual works are carried out. So it runs with the land. Runs with that, and you've had difficulties with that in the past. Yeah, that that and the overlay. I, I guess you know uh, to try and create a 173 over a, a, a piece of land is uh, is a challenge in itself. We've got to work closely with local government to do that. They might have more pressing things to do. Then there's the question of who enforces what in terms of that uh, that agreement. Uh, then you've got to get the householder involved as well, or the property owner involved as well, and accept that onto their title. Um, that's, that's quite an onerous thing to do. In the new Act, there's a new instrument called a site management order, which gives us the flexibility as a regulator to impose those conditions and enforce those conditions ourselves. Um, so we don't need to involve local government in that, uh, in that what has been a difficult exercise. Tim, just going back to the question around the definition of human health, including psychological health, the concept of the nocebo effect, it's the evil twin sibling of the healing placebo effect. It's documented in a vast research um, range of literature. When some people are exposed to frightening information about agents or exposures, expectancy effects just as powerful as placebo effects can operate to make people feel sick with worry or anxiety. How do you anticipate that this will play out given the definition of human health? Well, thanks, Jess. I wasn't aware of the nocebo effect either, so uh, I'm, I'm educated about it now. Um, look, I, I think that's always been um, 
uh, it's always been the case that people are uh, suffer anxiety from the information that they absorb about the environment and so forth. Um, we have those issues today. So um, there's a school of thought that says wind farms produce this uh, unusual noise impact called infrasound, which uh, can't be measured through typical instrumentation and so forth. Might be right, might be wrong. I, I, I don't know. I think what we can do as a, as a regulator is go back to the science um, and uh, stick to um, good conventional science me me messages and so forth. We, um, we took the initiative of engage engaging a chief environmental scientist for the first time at EPA to try and build our science capacity to try and put those sorts of, I guess, um, more compelling messages into the public domain. But that's always going to take time. You're always going to have different views out there. Is that a role that the EPA has played previously, having an environmental... Um, researcher essentially on staff? Uh, look, we've always had a science function to do things like air quality and, and water monitoring and so forth. Um, introducing a specific environmental health unit really sharpens the focus on environmental health and over the top of that, a chief environmental scientist means that, you know, Dr Andrea Hinwood, as it currently is, can, can interact with her counterparts like the, the chief health officer and so forth to really provide that, that leadership and put us in a position to put forward uh, strong scientific advice and dispel some of those myths that are out there. Uh, the EPA, Tim, has announced a new process called the Preliminary Risk Assessment Process. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, again, that comes back to um, until now we've really had a fairly blunt, I guess, uh, audit system and um, people's experiences once they got into an audit system, it took a very long time to get out of it again. Um, what we're experimenting with and what we're piloting is this preliminary risk screen, which will be in the new legislation. Um, and it's basically saying, let's, let's have a look at, at um, a light touch response in the first instance to determine whether there is any point in going any deeper and any further. And that means that you will get an auditor's statement from that So can you just give us an example? We've got, a, we've got a bit of land? Yep. And there's problems with the land? Yeah, so um, first thing you can do is have a look at the history of that land. You know, what was it used for? What were the potentially polluting uh, industries that might have been on that land previously? Mm. Uh, are there any records of the clean-up of that land and that sort of thing? And then you might take a few samples and determine you know, is there anything there that's particularly volatile, i.e. it's going to, you know, affect people who occupy that place in the future. You might need to go further if that were the case, but if it were, you know, known standard pollutants or very little, um, uh, very little demonstrable impact, you might be able to just move on with the development and do any residual cleanup during the development. So some of the industry comments have highlighted that there could be flaws in this process as auditors may be concerned with carrying the liability of allowing an expedited EAO process. Have you consulted with the wider development and planning community on these changes? Um, look, that issue of auditor conservatism has also come up for a long time. I, I'm not sure what the alternative is. Um, I don't want the auditors to be slack. Um, mm. so we want them to be uh, at least moderately uh, risk averse. So. Um, I'm not sure how much of a problem that, that really is, but yes, we have consulted. We've done this not by ourselves, but with our colleagues at DELP, Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Um, and we're running some pilots, actually running the pilot, so testing it before it goes live in a legislative sense. And I think that should flush out what are these auditor statements looking like? Are they unduly risk averse? Um, are they meeting the intent of the design of the program? Thank you.
Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Tim, the EPA faces a massive task, keeping an eye on vast amounts of chemicals and traders. Uh, how does technology fit into this oversight and, and, and what new methods are you using? Yeah, look, um, uh, we've had issues, obviously, uh, on, the, on the public record about um, illegal chemical uh, stockpiles and so forth, and we've had a few fires arising from that, which is very significant. Um, you would have heard a lot in the press at the, uh, the time about that, about EPA needing to inspect more warehouses. Well, I can tell you there's sort of, you know, 10,000 warehouses in the city of Hume alone. So there's only, you know, so many more. Sure, it's important to do more inspections, but that's not going to solve the problem, you know. There are hundreds of thousands of warehouses through Victoria. So um, what is going to solve the problem is probably technology. Mm-hmm. So um, having good GPS-based waste tracking, uh, having is, is data that analytics. Bit, is that a bit that. like the animal tracking that every animal is now chipped so that, like, I think it's RFI or something like that on them. Is it that's the sort of um, system you're looking at? That's absolutely the, the sort of system we're looking at. There's a number of technologies um, to go about it, but it's not, just, it's not just tracking it, it's doing something with that data. So intelligently using that information to try and work out, work out why the flows have changed, why... So uh, data analytics. Yeah, it's all, it's all yep. about growing our yep. data analytics capacity. It's a really important investment mm. that we need to make and we'll be making for 1st of July 2020. Can we talk a little bit about the concept of junk science? Um, there seems to be a general loss of faith in the community or scepticism about government agencies acting for the public good. Um, how does the EPA respond to this cultural setting? Uh, look... Um, I think that's always been the case again. People have always been cynical about authority. They're increasingly cynical as a result of um, Well, with some Dr. things Google in the so public forth. domain, there is reason to be cynical about mm. a lot of mm. government agencies. Mm. Sorry, uh, I think I'm, I'm thinking about the police, uh, you know, and the Royal Commission going on at the moment. There is, these things happen. I'm not saying the EPA is like that, but you can understand why there is some cynicism out there. Oh, absolutely, and I think that, um, you know, as, as I've mentioned, building a particular um, function in uh, human health excellence and with a chief scientist and so forth all, always helps. Look, you're always going to have people on that spectrum. You're going to have people who are very cynical. You're going to have, have people who are highly engaged and highly educated about it. Our role is to try and increment people along that spectrum. We have some techniques for, for doing that. Uh, we ran a um, uh, citizen science program whereby we got the community in the Latrobe Valley to co-design the air quality monitoring system in the Latrobe Valley. So they own it. They're learning about it as they're designing about it, as they're, as they're working on it and so forth. But there's always going to be people down the spectrum who continue to be critical, cynical, etc. And all you can do is try to increment them along that spectrum. Tim, just moving on to uh, waste and recycling, the, probably the elephant in the room. Um, many people weren't aware of the recent recycling industries, I guess what's been dubbed as the dirty secret, that the majority of material collected was being shipped overseas. How do we get a sensible discussion on the challenges and options of recycling for a rapidly growing population? 
Uh, look, from a, from a regulator's point of view, that that really is a matter for the policy professionals to try and generate that discussion. What I see as a as a regulatory professional is um, uh, we hear thing, we're hearing a lot about this. So it's in the public domain already. Um, you can't tune into the radio without hearing about four bins or container deposit legislation or plastic bags or whatever it might be. Um, we need to. Um, uh, we need to draw on our scientific expertise and our regulatory expertise to input to those sorts of discussions. And I'll come back to regulators have to regulate. When you earn your stripes as a regulator, people start to listen to you more. People start to, you can have that greater influence over these sorts of public policy programs. So that's what we see as our role as a regulator, is try and influence those public policy programs and build in uh, the science, the ability to enforce the ability to check compliance and so forth. Tim, most people don't have very limited knowledge of how recycling works. Um, they think it's like for like, throw in a plastic bottle into a yellow bin and out the other side comes a shiny new bottle. That's um, not the case, only about 2% of recycled materials come back like that. How do, how, do, how do you, and I don't mean you personally, meaning all of us, work in a context where the community who may expect 100% recycling develop practical, economical and sensible sustainable solutions? Yeah, look, I wish I, I wish I had a straight answer for that one, Peter, but yeah. that, uh, there are other agencies within government who provide more leadership in that sort of area, so, you know, sustainability is more tuned into those sorts of public expectations arguments. Our role as a regulator, I think, is to, in that area, make sure that there's a level playing field so that, you know, industries that do want to lift the recycling game aren't disadvantaged by a dirty landfill that's not doing the job properly. So, again, coming back to the role as a regulator, how do we contribute to these sorts of things and it's generally by regulating, providing good science um, and making sure that there's a level playing field for industries that want to compete in the space. There's been a lot of talk about the circular economy. Can you explain what that concept is? Uh, not very well. Um, as, I, as I understand a circular economy, it's about, you know, um, one person's waste is another person's input and trying to sort of take that to its logical extension where you've only got a very small amount or no residual waste at the end of it. Um, you know, again, as a regulator, um, we've tried to build into our new legislation uh, approach whereby we're tracking that waste all the way through the system until it becomes a product. So there's a new instrument under new regulations called a declaration of use that basically means waste stops being a waste and becomes a product. So that's just making it official and making sure that it's under the gaze of the regulator until such time as it's a product. Right. Um, new ways of treating waste, Tim. Waste to energy incinerators. Some people find this um, quite a shocking concept, but it goes on in East America, Sweden and Japan. There's something like 2,400 incinerator to energy um, facilities. And Sweden actually imports waste to burn into, into energy. Are there any local examples that you, do you know of? Yeah, look, there's quite a few. I think we've approved, you know, under our legislation about 10 or 12 waste to energy facilities. Some of those are not what you'd expect. They are a landfill, for example, is a waste to energy facility. It's collecting methane gas from decomposing uh, garbage, puts it into a generator, creates electricity. That's technically a waste to energy facility and not a lot of people would think about. There's also the organics recyclers. So, you know, people taking energy from um, uh, recycling uh, organics that are put into uh, 
uh, a vessel to basically decompose, you capture the gas, etc. There's quite a few of those around. The biggest one we've done recently was um, the potential for 600,000 tonnes a year of municipal waste to go into a waste to energy facility at Australian Paper in La Trobe Valley. Uh, that is a, a pretty significant bit of kit. It's a pretty large waste to energy facility. It basically uh, um, replaces their gas supply that they would normally use at that plant. Um, so that's probably the latest and um, more innovative of them because it's mm. the first one that's using municipal waste as a fuel source. Yeah. Not built yet. Now, Tim, a lot of people got problems with landfill. I don't have a problem with landfill. But um, what role do you see um, the in landfill being in the recycling hierarchy? Um, do, do landfill sites... And, and then, of course, how do we protect them? So well, where, does, where does landfill fit in the whole equation? Yeah, um, I mean, landfill's at the bottom of the, the waste hierarchy, so we expect, you know, reuse recycling beforehand. We still have a lot of residual waste. Now, we can get a lot better at that. We can pull out the organic fraction. We can pull out other fractions of waste. But I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to need landfills. Um, a lot of people come to us on a regular basis to talk about, you know, they've got a great idea to divert waste from landfill. I'm very wary of those conversations because a lot of those people don't know what they're talking about. And they're often offering a solution that can in fact be worse than landfilling. So if you've got somebody who wants to uh, do what they might describe as composting, but in fact equates to putting a load of rubbish in a paddock and letting it rot, hmm. that's not better than landfilling. Hmm. Um, so landfilling, it's not a dumb question, right? <laughs> so, so Land, landfilling at, at least um, collects the leachate from the rubbish, uh, so it protects the groundwater. Um, it's um, covered every evening with daily covers to stop the odour and so forth, stop the vermin infestation, that sort of thing. And methane is collected from rotting garbage at most of the large landfills in Victoria. So it's at least doing that. So I think that anything that's competing with landfill should also at least do that. And what's planning's role in managing and protecting those landfills? Uh, yeah, look, it's, um, it's very difficult to protect um, the space needed around a large urban landfill. So we were at, um, uh, we were at panel over the um, Melbourne Regional Landfill at Ravenhall. That's one of our bigger landfills. We were advocating a 1,500 metre buffer around that landfill. Now that's a lot of a lot of land to sterilise, right? Uh, I mean, we tried to come up with um, uh, to work with the, the panel to try to find ways to assign some of that buffer as commercial and industrial rather than more sensitive uses. Um, but it's really important to protect those buffers. Now that's a 1,500 metre buffer in a growth corridor, but also that site is listed by Sustainability Victoria as a site of state significance in terms of it being a waste hub. So really important for the growth of Melbourne, but a really important bit of infrastructure to protect. And it's, it's really important that EPA works with the planning system to protect that sort of space. On to urban renewal projects. Um, how, do you, how do you manage transitions in land use from the current state to a new state, like the urban renewed state, when existing uses may continue around that, that site? Uh, look, that's been painful in the past. I expect that to be painful again in the future. I, I think our role as a regulator is, you know, I come back again to holding people to account, right? So if you're getting communities starting to encroach on industries that have had a large buffer in the past, and they've enjoyed having that large buffer, nobody's complained. 
So they can operate their plant pretty much however they like. Um, but that's not acceptable. If the community is starting to encroach on it and starting to make complaints, we need to hold them accountable for managing their plant properly. So we need to find that delicate balance between holding um, you know, these people to account in terms of making sure they're running their plant at good contemporary standards, uh, but also not allowing community to come up right next door to them where they can't plausibly uh, operate their business. Um, so I think it's a bit of, bit of give and take, and I think, again, that's, uh, that's where EPA needs to work really closely with... Uh, There's a lot of competing for. interests there, aren't there? Look, look, there are, and, you know, I guess what we see is, most often, the gentrification wins, right? Mm, um, mm. But that doesn't give us the right to say, your plant is doomed. We've had, um, we've had a number of examples whereby we've tried to, um, through the agent of change principle, try to protect some of those sites. <laughs> Uh, on the agent of change principle, can you just explain that briefly to our listeners? Well, it's basically saying um, if you're knowingly um, introducing a sensitive use into, uh, into a sort of industrial area or something like that, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to you know, either, I don't know, maybe build soundproofing into your buildings or, or something like that. So you can't just expect that source to go away if you want to occupy that site. So the, the planning uh, in planning accepts the principle of existing use rights, but this doesn't always work with environmental requirements. Um, and the, the live music industry was very uh, in the spotlight where they received that pass where the, the agent of change had to apply to live music venues. Right, but why doesn't other why don't other industries enjoy the same the, the less sexier industries enjoy that same sort of right? Yeah, Pedro, I'm not sure we we accept, accept that the live industry, Sexy. live music industry, got a got a free pass, as you put it. That was Nick Twitty, um, I think. The the expectation is that um, again they do everything they can to manage their noise source properly. You know, we expect them to put in place noise proofing at their premises and uh, and those sorts of things. But if you're knowingly moving right next door to a live music venue, well, you know, um, you can't expect them to turn off the music at your bedtime. Um, so, you know, the agent of change principle is, is seeking to put the onus back on, back on the people who are making the change in the system. Um, and I disagree. I think that has been evident elsewhere that um, we are using agent of change in other areas. Um, recently, a uh, precinct structure plan changes at Officer Town Centre, which is very, very close to a grain facility. Um, we've sought through the planning scheme uh, process to um, to put in controls on houses to be built nearby this facility. We'll also be expecting that facility to operate properly, but there's a point at which you can't get um, any closer without it causing a nuisance of some sort. The APA also has a significant role to play in air quality monitoring, amongst other things, obviously. What is the EPA's view around encouraging density along main roads and transit corridors? Surely the air quality in these locations would be poorer. There seems to be some friction here between planning and environment. Can you discuss? Hmm. Look, um, we, um, uh, we, are, we have data which says that being near a roadside uh, it's more polluted than being further back from a roadside. That's just a, a fact that, that we're aware of. But we don't have infinite power to be able to say this thing should be located closer and this thing should be located further. 
what we can do is build up our credibility as a regulator, underpinned by good science, to advocate um, good science in, the, in those sorts of areas. So we worked recently with the city of Whittlesey who were developing a, a child um, child centre policy, so where should they locate them and so forth. And we put the scientific argument which was which was ultimately built into their policy. So that's um you know that's one opportunity that we've we've utilised. That relies on people listening to the advice that we've got to offer and, and sometimes they will and sometimes they won't. And that's a, again comes back to building our credibility as a good science based regulator. And the EPA is a good punching bag for a lot of you know media and uh you know, vocal critics, I would think. I mean, it's a easy, pretty easy target. You don't have to answer that question, Tim. Part of the um, job, Peter. Part of the job. So internal air pollution uh, readings can be a shock, um, worse than outside. Who regulates the internal health of buildings? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's us. Okay. And it's not an issue addressed under our new legislation. Um, so look, um, certainly from an occupational health point of view, clearly that's that's the role of WorkSafe. But in terms of you know, sh I know sh people walking around shopping centres or something like that, uh, I, I don't really know. I've got bigger fish to fry, frankly, in terms of you know water quality, air quality, and so forth. So, just quickly moving on to mining before we finish up, what is the EPA's new role in the regulation of mining and the extractive industries? So we're now a statutory referral agency for changes to work plans and work plan variations. Uh, that's important because it means that um, the Earth Resources Regulator that, uh, that um, regulates mines is required to consult with us through b before there are significant changes made. So we can provide that good scientific advice around um, uh, dust, noise, control and, and so forth. So it's, it's I guess, recognising that mines are not unique from any other industry, they're, they're, they're quite capable of, of polluting and the pollution regulator should be having a say in that. Mm. Tim, many people would not know that it's against the law in Victoria to search for onshore gas, despite the fact that it's one of our main energy sources. Does the EPA have any involvement in a review of the situation? Uh, look, I'm, I'm, not, um, uh, I'm not involved in it at the moment. Peter, certainly um, when the review comes and goes through a process, we would expect to make a submission. We'll be making a submission as a regulator that has insights to you know, what happens on the ground and has insights into the science. And we'll be yeah. trying to leverage our, our influence in any review. And Tim, are there any over the horizon issues in the environmental protection sphere that we don't know about just yet? Uh, well, if I knew about them, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd tell you about them. But um, the, the ones that I guess we suspect are, what's the next legacy issue we're going to confront? That's mm, probably that's it. So what's the next um, chemical of the year? I think the chemical of the year recently has been PFAS, which was used in firefighting foams and, and so forth. And that's, um, that's certainly got a lot of profile. The question is, what's the next one? So we work closely with other jurisdictional EPAs, particularly New South Wales EPA, doing a lot of work in trying to undertake that sort of risk analysis of what's the next emerging legacy chemical. Uh, there's a few candidates. There's one called um, bifenthrin that, um, uh, that is used in uh, pesticides. So if you want to control termites around your house, you're likely to just put a little bit more down than the, uh, than the manufacturer's recommendations. And that, that finds its way into wetlands, which destroys 
uh, you know, crustaceans and so forth. So that could emerge as a significant issue in the future. But maybe not. It might be something completely different. But that's what we're looking for all the time, is what's the next chemical that's going to emerge as being more harmful than the manufacturers thought it was back in the day. Well, Tim, this is the part of the the podcast where we do podcast extra, and I asked Jess what she's been listening to, or what's inspired her of recent times, or what she's been thinking about. Well, I have finished the book, so that is that's, good, that's yes. positive. Um, recently, I went snow hiking up at Mount Buller, or actually next to Mount Buller at Mount Sterling, which was really good fun. Um, I haven't done that before. It's an incredible experience. If anyone ever wants to try, um, go up to Mount Sterling at telephone box point what about you very Pete? virtuous jess um i'm thinking about the persistence of memory jess and how <laughs> your, f- your recommendations are always very deep i know well um, it's all about the film we take the videos we take and i'm trying to collate that and put it on backup you know items and and make films of old things because people people leave us and memories are gone very quickly so i think it's important to just make protect and and value that that sort of media this is why we're using the handheld camcorder today and not the iphone we'll be making a little film of this uh (laughs) what do you do to rest and relax (laughs) you've been been talking about books and so forth i'm a bit more lowbrow i've been watching tv and i've been watching the new series of utopia which is a very good documentary about public (laughs) service not not too close to home it's very close to home, <laughs> well, well, Tim, thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Vipla for sponsoring us and making this possible. It's been terrific to partner up and they've given us complete editorial licence. They don't ask anything of us. Um, and we really are grateful to be associated with such a super organisation. Also, our other sponsors, the VPRs, who've been with us from the start, and Song Bowden as well. Uh, Listeners, I would urge you to listen to the Urban Broadcast Collective, which we are part of. That's a great series of Australian uh, urban uh, development podcasts coming out of academia. So, just to end of PX56, thank you. And Tim, you've been a terrific guest. Thank you so much. And also to our live audience. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.